And a good Thursday morning to you, meteorologist Dan Skeldon, on this week's Tidal Flooding Talk with my co-host, Dr. Bill Thomas, our weekly guest, which we'll get to in one second. Appreciate you guys uh, giving us a follow, giving us a listen as we continue to work our way through the summer, just through the the closest full moon of the year, the, the super moon, the July full buck moon, officially full uh, uh, Wednesday night. Tides running a little higher than average, but thankfully... Um, you know, no storms to, uh, to to cause any huge issues. And, yeah, the summer just continues to uh, tick right along. We're past July 4th, you know, mid-July. We're, we're waiting for the tropics. Um, you know, we're not excited about the tropics eventually coming to life again. But, of course, that is uh, the rite of passage every summer. The, the hurricane season heats up and that peak of the season about a month away, mid-August to early October traditionally in South Jersey. And it is supposed to be a busy year this year. Let's hope that uh, it's busy, but all the storms stay out to sea, and uh, you know we'll talk more about hurricanes as that season goes on. But let's uh, let's bring in my co-host, Dr. Bill Thomas, um, on this Thursday morning. Before we uh, get to our guest, uh, of course, Dr. Thomas, we always just do uh, my wheelhouse, which of course is weather forecasting, and just give listeners a very quick sneak peek into the weekend. And this time of year in July. It's, uh, you know, we joke about it a lot, but meteorologists have an easy job. It's partly sunny. It's, it's warm or hot. It's humid. And there's a daily chance of a shower or a thunderstorm. And that's kind of our forecast going into the weekend. We haven't had the excessive heat, uh, the long, like, you know, blistering heat waves this summer. All that stuff has been out west where there's been, you know, increasing drought issues. And uh, that's where the hot weather's been. But, yeah, our, our weekend is going to be 85 to 90. Sea breezes occasionally cool you down couple of scattered thunderstorms each afternoon, just the typical dog days of summer weather. Sounds like summer. <laughs> we complain about it when it's not here, and we complain when it's here. It must be, well, it must be living in New Jersey, right? That, that's right. I always find that, like, you know, when I, and on social media sometimes, I'll ask a poll question, and, uh, you know, what do you prefer, 90-degree heat or, you know, a snowstorm in the winter? And if you ask that question during the hottest time of the summer, <laughs> people often say, no, I want snow. And then in the middle of winter, they want 90s. And, and that's the beautiful thing of living in this part of the country. You get both. You get all four seasons. Now, I will say, though, full disclosure, I will always choose snow i'm not i'm not a hot weather lover so uh so my answer is uh snow or you know fall or winter weather year round but hey to each his own yeah yeah well having grown up in the great lakes i uh i'm used to snow i kind of shovel it for uh i enjoy it but at some point i'm going to get to the point where i can't do that anymore and i might have to move somewhere where it doesn't snow at all (laughs) all right let me well this week look we've got a, a a really interesting guest dr john miller from the stevens institute uh, John works on coastal processes, which, you know, include things like shoreline changes and storm impacts, things that everybody in New Jersey and all our listeners will be interested in. So good morning, John, and welcome to the uh, Tidal Flooding Talk podcast. Good morning, and thanks for having me. John, would you, you know, just to jump right into it, I, you know, I found you through uh, a network, but I also, uh, looking at your work online, I thought you might talk about... Um, some of the things that you've developed, like the um, shoreline index that uh, gives us an idea of what, you know, the impact of uh, drivers of coastal erosion are and what their impact is. I mean, I'm more, I'm an anthropologist, so eventually I want to ask you questions about, well, how do we do, how do humans deal with this? And uh, do we really, is this going to be a a cycle we're in forever? But if you could just introduce our listeners to the um, 
your uh, shoreline index, that would be yeah. a great help. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so we, uh, so I'm a coastal engineer uh, by trade, and uh, we've been working for years on something we call our storm erosion index. Um, and the reason that we uh, developed that is because you know, when a, particularly when a, a tropical storm comes and people talk about it in terms of a category one storm or category five storm, everybody sort of understands what the potential impacts of that are. Um, growing up in New Jersey, having lived here my entire life, I know that uh, particularly during the wintertime, we would have these nor'easters and the nor'easters would cause coastal flooding, but also beach erosion. And beach erosion is something that I'm very interested in. Um, so the index that we developed, um, it's based on... Uh, physical processes or physical principles. Um, and it, it takes into account the three main drivers of coastal erosion. Uh, those three drivers are elevated water levels. So the storm surges, uh, same thing that causes the coastal flooding. Um, waves, so you have to have elevated waves. So we always say that the water level kind of drives where the, where the water is intersecting with the beach. Um, the waves actually provide the energy to create the erosion. Um, and then the last key component is the duration of the storm. So how long um, is that storm pounding on the shoreline? The longer it pounds, the more uh, erosion you may get. So we developed this index because we would typically get asked questions when storms would arise about um, what the erosion impact might be. And, you know, while, while we knew these different pieces fit together um, and we would do our best to kind of... Uh, provide a subjective guess as to what the erosion might look like, we developed this index to provide a numerical value, which we could then more objectively um, assess what the impacts might be and compare it to prior storms. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's the gist of our storm erosion work. And that's as a meteorologist, John, um, that's, you know, we, you mentioned the category system, you know, you know, for, for tropical systems, category one through five, that's a, it's exclusively a wind based system. So now it gives us an idea of what the wind is going to be, you know, we, have, well, as meteorologists, we issue storm surge warnings as well. And storm surge forecasts that gives you an idea of what the water level is going to be. But I'll say, you know, uh, right off the top, I mean, your index provides something that, you know, meteorology or at least you know the National Weather Service or or, or forecast available to the public uh, don't provide. We, we don't. I mean, we will say, hey, beach erosion is likely, but we don't quantify that with anything. So I think this, you know, really kind of fulfills a fulfills a, a need. Uh, just is something that's just not available. Is anyone else having a hard right time now. hearing Bill, or is it just me? Uh, everybody seems to be okay. Oh, my bad, Bill. Go ahead. <laughs> Go get him, Dan. <laughs> did I? Uh, I'm sorry, John. I'm not sure where my question cut off. Um, how much of that did you hear? I I, I heard. Um, well, I was I was hearing the, uh, the 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 index fulfilling the need. Um, but I don't know if yes. there's ever a, a question at the end of it. <laughs> okay. Well, well I, I, I guess, uh, you know, it was, it was just, uh, I, I, I don't know if there was a question built in there or not, but I, I would just say as a meteorologist, I, I, I think this is something the public does need. I think emergency managers do need, um, you know, those that are in charge of, you know, maintaining uh, the shore, which is so vital to, uh, you know, to, to our economy. Uh, you, you do need something like this, to quantify something that 
you know, right now, meteorology and public forecasts do not. So I, I just more of a kudos yeah. and, uh, you know, and a thank you for, for kind of filling that gap of something that we don't provide as meteorologists. Yeah. And actually the, I guess the, the real, so the, the, the two places we used to get the questions about the erosion that uh, one would be from the media. Um, but then the other place we would get the question would be actually from the DEP. So New Jersey DEP would, would want to have a better understanding of what the potential in terms of erosion impacts might be. Um, and then I guess the flip side of what we do with the index is we can also use the index after storms have occurred to go back and take sort of a, a postmortem look at kind of how bad or how serious the storms were. And this fills a need because in a lot of cases, there's certain sources of funding that can be tapped into to help repair beaches that are, uh, are dependent upon the severity of the storm. And if it's, not a, if it's not a hurricane, if it doesn't have a category associated with it, it's kind of hard to, again, objectively assess the, the power of the storm. So the index provides a way to go back afterwards and, and uh, understand how intense the storm actually was. And, and let me follow up with an actual question now more than a comment, <laughs> but, um, but how, uh, how is the index kind of feared, uh, you know, uh, you know, so, something you issue, you know, in advance of a storm and, um, you know, how, how has the, as, as the accurate, I mean, is it something you rate like, okay, this worked out really well. We were expecting this and we got this. And, uh, I, I guess like, as that far as accuracy or performance, how has the index uh, held up? So over time, the index has held up very well. Um, so we've applied it. We actually developed a 30-year, we call it a climatology uh, of storm erosion uh, in New Jersey. So we, we look back at a 30-year historical record of storms along the coast and uh, developed uh, a climatology based on it. So sort of reassessing the storms through the lens of storm erosion. Um, and overall, it performs pretty well. Um, we're constantly assessing uh, where where the index does well and where it doesn't do as well. So this past winter, we 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 ran it sort of in live mode uh, for two storms: um, the winter storm, the nor'easter we hit, had in January, uh, and then we actually ran it in uh, mid March and then uh, I'm sorry, mid April and then uh, Mother's Day weekend to assess the the two. Uh, spring nor'easters that we had and we find out things as we do that so as an example we found out that um, you know when we looked at the two spring nor'easters and that's responsible for a lot of the erosion that we see on the, the beaches still right now um, what we found is that neither of those two storms individually registered particularly high on the index however when you look at sort of their cumulative impact um, they rank much higher so um you know, we're learning about the importance of the recovery time that the beach has between storms, and that plays a role um, in, in ultimately determining the, what we see on the beaches. So uh, we're constantly assessing and trying to figure out ways that we can do better, but, um, but overall, the index does very well. And, and, and Dr. Thomas, I promise I'll let you ask a question. So I, okay. I, have one more, I have one more follow-up, and then uh, just because it, it ties into what you just said, John, but is, is there a chance, like, you know, because we had, I mean, some winters are pretty easy on the shore as far as the lack of nor'easters, and there are, there are winters or winters and early springs where nor'easters just come one after another and just constantly pound the beach. Is that something that you, you know, could possibly be an additional factor that's worked into the index where you, you know you have the current state 
of of the shore. Let's just say it's been you know beat to heck by uh, by nor'easters, and there isn't much beach left, and there's already so much erosion. And of course, you know erosion begets erosion, and it's just easier to eat away. You know, if, if the defenses have already been knocked down. So is, is that something that you know? Could be, uh, do, you, do you already factor in or could it be increasingly factored in as you understand erosion better? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's actually a great question. So when we developed the index, um, we actually purposefully chose to sort of separate out like the two aspects of the storm. One is the, one is the power of the storm itself, and then the other is the condition of the beach when the storm hits. So we did originally we focused purely on the storm. And so we called it our storm erosion index. And we, we said that it, it predicted storm erosion potential. Um, and then depending on the state of your beach, you would either realize that entire potential or some portion of the storm's potential or not much of it. More recently, we've had some PhD students actually bring that, um, that aspect into the model. So we have, we've been working on a couple of dune erosion models which do exactly that. They, they consider what the beach looks like at the time that the storm is occurring and then combines that together to ultimately predict um, more directly the impacts of the storm on the beach. And uh, we literally just had two PhD students graduate in the past year and a half um, that published work on that. And, and we're very positive about the direction that's going. The key to that is having the information about the condition of the beach prior to the storm impacting. Um, because that's something, we have lots of forecasts of water levels and wave heights, and that part's actually the easy part. Um, knowing exactly what the beach looks like when that storm happens. It's a little bit more tricky because we don't collect data on the beaches as much as we could or should. So that's the, that's, that's the, uh, the key component, I think, to kind of closing the loop and being able to provide really good predictions of dune erosion. John, you kind of answered my question there. And that, uh, but I, I guess the follow-up to me is, of the beaches you're familiar with, what beaches are in the best shape to handle uh, a coastal nor'easter, say a coastal storm, do you have uh, any? I mean, Wildwood's enormous. Is that the kind of thing we? Yeah, Wild 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 in pretty good shape. Um, you know, it's it, it's the ones that you would think of. It's the it's the it's the wide beaches and the and the beaches with actually the the really impressive dune systems. Um, you know, those are the ones that are going to be in the best shape. Um, and then the one and you know, the, another key factor in this is the whole beach nourishment aspect of it, right? So immediately after beaches are nourished, they, they tend to be in pretty good shape. They're wide, they're tall, they're high, the dunes are in pretty good, robust condition. Um, but then over time, as, you know, the beaches go through their natural cycles, um, you get, tend to get the, the sections of the coastline that just generally speaking are more narrow, a lot of those are the areas that got impacted during Hurricane Sandy. You get the Wortley Beach kind of area where traditionally the beach is fairly narrow. The dunes are tall and skinny. Um, you know, those are the areas that are, are, are constantly um, we have to work on to, you know, make sure that they're less vulnerable. Um, but, yeah, that's that's it's 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 the the ingredients are not necessarily it's it's it, the ingredients are not necessarily a secret right it's how the ingredients are combined um and how they kind of play off of one another um that really determine ultimately how much beach erosion so you can have a really uh a really wide beach but very low beach um and 
that'll like, unfortunately the water will then be able to attack the dunes directly or what's behind the dunes if they even have dunes um or you could have a very narrow but very tall beach and and it's just harder for the water to actually access those dunes so everything kind of it's all a system and it all plays together um and so that's uh, trying to kind of un unlock those relationships and we're, and we're using machine learning actually to unlock some of those relationships because we don't have all of the physical understanding that we need to. Um, and machine learning provides us a tool to uh, using data to try to help um, unlock the mysteries of, of, of what's happening at the, at, at the beaches. So uh, I, I, obviously that's, that's really interesting. It's kind of uh, instinctual if you're on the beach too, like you said, if it's, if it's wide, if the system, dune system is intact, if, you know, typically the dunes, there's several layers of dunes. So that, that makes sense to those of us who spend a lot of time on the beach. I guess I would ask you then, are there any beaches, maybe if you'd have to go outside New Jersey, feel free, that are naturally, the cycle is naturally sort of uh, working so that they're replenished and that um, the dune system, although, you know, ebbs and flows, but is what you would call a uh, sort of a working beach that would act as perf uh a uh, a barrier against coastal storm surges, or do we have to go all the way to Hatteras to find something? Yeah, like that? I mean, no, there there are definitely areas in New Jersey that um, there are areas in New Jersey that get it right, um, and, and some of it is some of it is uh, natural. Some just being in the right spot at the right time. Um, there are you know certain areas that are just more prone to erosion in New Jersey than others, and that that's not just New Jersey; it's you know every right. coastline. Uh, so some of it's natural. Some of it is um, uh, man-made or man-assisted. Um, you know, there, there are communities that do a great job of taking care of their dunes. Um, you know, Seaside Park, I think, has always done a fairly good job. Um, you know, more sort of the northern part of the state, Bradley Beach generally does a pretty decent job of trying to make sure their dunes are reinforced and stable. Um, and you know, and there are areas that, you know, Avalon, Avalon's a great example in New Jersey of, it's one that we typically point to um, where they, they don't so much as have like a dune, they have a, a dune forest, right? They, they don't just have uh, some beach grass mm. that's growing on their dunes. They, they legitimately have a forest with sh trees and shrubs um, embedded within their dune. And, uh, you know, part of that also comes back to, um, you know, many years ago making decisions about when and when and how you can develop um along the coast where you can develop along the coastline and, and protecting that 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 natural infrastructure um but develop not not allowing uh, you know encroachment upon uh the the sort of dynamic coastal areas um so you know that, that's a that's a that's a great example and, and even wildwood i mean wildwood is uh the beaches are very wide and, you know, th you know, the history of Wildwood throughout time, that there was the resistance of the temptation to continue to build seaward as the beach moved out and got bigger and bigger. Hey, there's all this developable land, right, that's been generated. <laughs> and, you know, that ha it, it hasn't happened, you know, it's, you know which, is, which is a good thing. Because I think that's, and it's, this is not a New Jersey thing. This is just a natural, I think, a human nature thing. You know, areas of Florida that, you know, developed in the, in the 1970s, the explosion in, in development 
at a time when there were very few hurricanes impacting the state of Florida compared to the historical norms. So you start to see this development, you know, this ever march, ever the slow march towards the water. Um, and, you know, now that, you know, hurricanes have kind of come back to their historical norm, you got some development, which is, you know, in danger, uh, so to speak. So, um, but there are definitely natural areas, um, even within New Jersey, that that are are well protected with beach and dune systems. Now, uh, John, do you um, and not sure if this is uh, something your index handles or not. Do you focus uh, strictly on the ocean front of New Jersey, or you know, we we do have erosion, the kind of disappearing shoreline along Delaware Bay, up the uh, backside of Cape May County, up through Cumberland and Salem counties as well. You know, uh, towns that have been you know, abandoned over the years uh, due, due to the, mm-hmm. the rising sea level. And, you know, uh, towns don't necessarily have dune systems. It's more like old sea walls, if anything. And obviously the wave action is a little bit less. But uh, does does your index uh, um, go up the Delaware Bay side of the uh, southwestern New Jersey coastline? So it would, it would go up. Um, it would turn the corner and probably be... Um, uh, applicable in areas of Ryan Bay um, and then potentially Delaware Bay. Um, but you're right, the, the, the interior erosion and the you know, marshes as well are, are undergoing erosion. And one of the great things about being uh, in, in an institution like Stevens is that I have students. And so I, I do have a number of students working on living shorelines, which are more focused in the back bay areas uh, and marsh erosion. And so one in particular is really interested in trying to take some of what we've done on the ocean front and translate that. The processes are different. There's different types of sediments and the vegetation holds the marshes together differently. Um, as you said, the wave action is lower. Um, so, but trying to extend some of what we've been doing on the ocean to the back bay areas. Um, and so that's something we're working on, but as of now, it's not directly applicable except sort of at the very fringes where you turn the corner into Delaware Bay and, and, and up into Raritan Bay. And then I would be remiss if I didn't, uh, you know, ask uh, for our listeners, you know, where is your index uh, available? Uh, you know, obviously people know, all right, I'll, I'll go to the National Weather Service site or, you know, your favorite TV station site to get, you know, uh, the latest on, you know, Category 1 hurricane or or. or- know a major storm but uh where can people find your index and read more Uh, about it and just find uh you know you know find more information about it that's a great question so (laughs) the the answer is right now it's sort of it's it's in the it's it's hidden um and it's not it's not necessarily hidden on purpose so our our, ultimately our objective is i I know you had mentioned you're somewhat familiar with our our flooding work and our um our our storm surge prediction system Ultimately, our goal is to create something similar for the storm erosion index. Um, so right now, we're in this beta testing phase where we run the index when necessary, when storms are approaching. Uh, we provide the information to the DEP, both in a forecast mode and then in a post-storm sort of assessment mode. Um, and we provide those reports uh, to DEP. Um, where we want to go is we want to get the ultimately the funding to be able to put it on our public facing website, similar to where our coastal flooding advisories go out. Um, and 
you know, in a very simple kind of one one translation, you know, we on our, our flooding site, we, we have the ability to send out uh, text alerts um, and email alerts to people that are interested. Um, the idea would be to do something similar with the erosion index. So people that are interested in erosion in Wildwood would be able to log onto the site and whenever a storm is coming, rather than having to go to the website, would automatically get an alert that says, hey, beach erosion is likely in Wildwood, Seaside Heights, or wherever they're interested in. But that's that's a goal, but it's it's not quite there yet. I didn't mean to I didn't mean to put you on the spot like that, but but no I, I appreciate I, I I'm excited just uh, personally for I, I think the the the, fl- the coastal flood advisory um, you know, public portion of your site is such an asset. So if, yeah, if, if this can become uh, like a tandem, um, you know, asset that, that the public can use, I, I think it's win-win for everybody. So, so I wish you good luck uh, in you know, that continued endeavor. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it too, because it's been a lot of behind the scenes work at this point and, you know, working closely with DEP and Corps of Engineers in some, st- some, some instances, um, but it, it would be nice to kind of open open it up and, and make it more public facing because I think we're at the point where all that work is um, it's ready for it. It's just a matter of it's it's a matter of funding and it's a matter of uh, uh, the right people to to be able to. I mean, all the information is there, so it's just a matter of um, collecting all that information and essentially uh mirroring that 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 flood advisory website so that we can get the storm erosion index on there so i I wanted to just re-rock for just a second because i I work with forest ecosystems and when you mentioned the coastal forest and the dunes that piqued my interest in we typically you know at least in new guinea's forests it's 25 years then 50 years and beyond is is that sort of the like the timelines you, you think of when establishing a the beginning of a brush sort of forest on a dune? It take at least twenty five years of uh, stable dunes to do something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably. I mean, I'm. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I am estimate. You know? I am not. A, I am not uh, a biologist or ecologist or whatever. Sure. I'm not even sure what the right term is, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you do need to have dunes that are stable for quite some time. Um, okay. So you're so, you get your sort of succession of plants. So you get your initial beach grasses, you know, popping up. And then if things become stable over time, and if you get, you know, certain dune ridges and provide the, uh, the, the types of conditions that are uh, amenable to the growth of the larger plants, the shrubs, and then, and then into the, uh, the trees, then, yeah, that stuff will begin to take hold. But I, I'd imagine that you're probably thinking roughly the same sort of order of magnitude time frame. Okay. Yeah, it just sounded to me like something that, you know, as you mentioned, that there's every beach is a little different. But if you can start to put some long range planning into these things, the amount of money and that is dumped into shore replenishment can be um, tweaked so that you're tailoring it to work on places that have to have it. Mm-hmm. And in other spots, do it and then begin to build these 25 and 50 year old systems that will, you know, ameliorate the costs and just help. You know, because one of the big complaints when I, I was in city government, when the Absecon Island uh, put dunes in and I was a big dune fan. But lots of folks claimed that natural processes were, were at work and that we were wasting money and, you know, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I had obviously a different take on it. But 
the point is that now that once those dunes are in, we, won't, we shouldn't need to establish dunes if we can get them going and get them into the, you know, establish a like sort of coastal forest cycle rather than a constant need to replenish cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think that's, you know, that's the, the thing is beaches and dunes are, are natural systems and they're, they're, they're dynamic. And so, you know, it's, uh, you, know, you can you can put you can reinforce dunes and beaches in certain places, but the sand is going to move the way that it wants to move. And so, uh, you know, it's it's you know, beach nourishment and sand and beaches and dunes are a part of the whole coastal resilience picture, um, mm-hmm. but they're certainly not the not the only part of the equation. So, lastly, I just wanted you to, um, if you can, make a pitch for the. Uh, Stephen's flood advisor. I, I subscribe. I find it very useful. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it seems like it touches just about anywhere in the state that you might have a coastal flood. Uh, do you want to let our listeners know exactly what you guys have got going there and how they can subscribe? Yeah, sure. Um, so Stevens uh, runs something called the Stevens Flood Advisory Service. Uh, Stevens SFAS, we call it SFAS. Yes. Um, and so what that is, is, and this is something that we had done, we had been working on even prior to Hurricane Sandy, um, where we work with the emergency management folks and DEP and even DOT to help them understand what areas of the state might flood when a storm was approaching. Um, one of the things that we learned when Sandy happened was it was really important to understand sort of the variability in the, in the forecasts um, that were coming. So what we have now is what's called, what's called an ensemble model, which means that uh, although we provide a prediction, the most likely prediction for water levels throughout the state, and that the actual model covers, um, it's actually a series of stacked models, um, but the, for the most part, I mean, we cover the entire state of New Jersey, the entire um, Atlantic coast. Um, we go up the Hudson River, Hackensack River, Passaic River, um, you know, up into Delaware Bay. Um, and what the model does is it, it's, it's an ensemble model. So it takes into account all of the different meteorological forecasts. And so there's 96 different ensemble members, I think that kind of feed in. And those are the, the 96 different forecasts of what the weather might do. So this is what the winds might do, how the storms might track, um, all of that kind of comes in and then we run our hydrodynamic model. So we say, okay, based on all these meteorological forecasts, what's the water going to do? Um, and that gives us sort of a range of scenarios. Um, if the storm attacks directly as according to this model, it will do one thing. If it comes up the coast and skirts the coast, it'll do something different. Um, and that allows us to kind of provide our best guess prediction as to what the water is going to do. Basically improves our accuracy as to how much flooding we expect to occur. But it also allows us to provide sort of boundaries um, in terms of uncertainty. So uh, what we basically say is that we can be um, very certain that you're going to get at least this much water. Um, ah. And we are very certain you're not going to get any more than this much. But if you want like just a single estimate, like this is what we, this is, this is our best guess as to what's going to happen, but it might all, it might be anywhere, you know, in this range. And that, that allows people to provide people to, to do the information as, you know, whatever they will. So different people have different risk tolerances and thresholds and, um, you know, we work with the Port Authority a bit on this, um, 
And so their facilities have different thresholds in terms of, you know, uh, how concerned they need to be um, right. at certain water levels, a certain time. out. So we provide these forecasts, I should say, um, uh, four days out. Uh, so we have, a, a, we're at four days out, we're predicting what these water levels will be like. Um, the model actually runs itself every six hours. So the forecasts are updated every six hours as the storm gets closer. Um, as the storm gets closer, the meteorological predictions get better. The uncertainty gets narrower. So we, we hone in on a, a better prediction. And, you know, we have a variety of different users. This is something I said, you know, you, we have a notification system. People can subscribe to the different stations that are of interest to them. Uh, and they'll get alerts as to when flooding is going to occur. Um, I believe it's an email notification. I don't know yeah. if it's text yet, but it's definitely email. Um, yeah, and we have, we have users that range from, uh, you know, government officials to, you know, just everyday coastal residents that um, live in an area, Long Beach Island or Monmouth Beach or Seabright that, you know, flood at, you know, at really high tides. And they use it, you know, to make decisions. You know, hey, should I do I have to move the car today? Um, and, yeah, and, and the advantage to our system is because we're using this ensemble approach um, and because we also incorporate things, it's not just the coastal side, it's all the water that comes down the rivers as well. Mm -hmm. um, because we have all that great information and feed it, feeding into it, um, our model tends to be very, very accurate. Um, so, um, like I said, the Port Authority uses it for some of their um, facilities. Um, you know, a lot of... A lot of county and city officials use it. So, um, and it's all accessible online. That's all, it's all the actual model interface is available. It's actually, I'll give the website, it's hudson.dl.stevens-tech.edu backslash SFAS. Or if you're Google inclined, you can just search Stevens SFAS on Google and you should come up with the website. Um, yeah, and it's been we've, it's been in, it's been operational for God fifteen years now, um, and uh, yeah, it's a very useful system. And again, hopefully, we'll get to the point where storm erosion index will be kind of a part of that. But uh, but yeah, and, and John, I'll say too, just uh, um, uh, again, comment, not a question this time. It, it's very helpful to media. You know, I, I've been uh, you know a South Jersey meteorologist since 2003, and I know Philadelphia meteorologist, and I'm sure, even though I don't know this firsthand, New York meteorologists. Uh, you know, when communicating coastal flooding hazards, uh, your your site is one of the primary tools we use as well. And I, th I think it's just it 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 just really gives a good picture. And 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 I can't speak enough about ensemble forecasting too. It's not something you can you explained it well. It's not something that you know people necessarily you know understand unless you get a great explanation. But and, and I think you provided that. But uh, ensemble forecasting, the the averages of all these model runs, something we use in weather forecasting, something that is you know obviously very useful in coastal flood forecasting too. So um, so I thank you on behalf of the media. Uh, for for what you guys do, because it, it, it is a vital tool in our arsenal to uh, to help us communicate flood risk. Oh, you're, you're welcome. And this is yeah, this is something that, you know, again, this was generated 15 plus years ago with a very sort of specific audience. And, then, you know, through time, we've realized that, you know, it's being used not only by meteorologists, and community officials, but I mean, even uh, boaters, you know, you work a lot with the Sandy Hook pilots, you know, piloting ships up the Hudson River. 
Um, and they use the forecasts, water levels, and even currents that, that we predict uh, to help pilot ships up the Hudson. So it's been great. Yeah, I, I, as a non-professional, but a interested amateur, I can't say enough about the uh, accuracy. You know, I've avoided uh, a lot of delays and car damage uh, using that tool. And, you know, something we try to get through to our listeners, resiliency is not going to be a silver bullet. It's uh, developing tools and a and an awareness of your environment so you can use those tools to actually live with the changes we're undergoing. John, I, I can't thank you enough. This was great. Um, I know it was very informational. Infor- if I could speak English, I'd be even better at this. And, uh, you know, I, I hope you'll be willing to come back on because I'm sure that as these dynamic processes continue, we're going to need some more uh, advice on what the heck's going on with our coastal shorelines. Sure. I'd love right. to. It's been great. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Um, on next week's uh, podcast, I, I want to get a 20,000-foot view from Dan on some of the weather slash climate processes that we're looking at. We're going to try something new because it seems to me the world's either on fire or under flood. And I think Dad's got some uh, lifetime of uh, work in these fields that can provide us with some really interesting insights. Well, th- thankfully, yeah, not, neither fire or flood here in New Jersey, at least for now. We, we hope that's, uh, that stays yeah. the case. But you're right. There is a lot of wild weather out there and look forward to talking with you about that next Thursday, 1030 on our next episode of Title Plumbing Talk. Uh, thank right. you so much, gentlemen, for taking time today. Great conversation and uh, appreciate you being here. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, John. Thank you. Bye.